with Todd Cashton, the author of The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent, I'll pronounce that properly later in the show probably, and Defy Effectively. Todd, uh, this is a fascinating book because for those that are just hearing about it and thinking, well, what's this? Um, it's, it's almost like a handbook or a guide um, to sort of, you know, how to, how to be yourself, how to get influence others. How do you put it? Because I know uh, sort of the essence here is principled insubordination. Could you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, it, to some degree, this book isn't about rebels or rebellions or insubordination. It's kind of what, you know, Steve, you referred to. This is about we have science of, of terms of strategies to get us closer to a utopian ideal of how we can live with the greatest well-being possible without detracting from other people. And the principled insubordination piece, it's, it's taking a perceived negative and turning it into a positive. It's about we live in so many social hierarchies, right? In the workplace, you've got these organizational charts with the people on top making six figures with a parking spot that's better than people who are eight months pregnant. And we are talking about disobeying orders, disobeying rules, questioning norms and challenging authority, not because we're the 15-year-old kid who's slamming their their fist against a desk saying, I refuse to do it because we see the flaws. We see the inefficiencies. And while the world's getting better, there's still a lot of problems. And the dissenters among us speed up cultural evolution. That's, and we're talking with Todd Cashin, the author of The Art of Insubordination. Todd, um, the book is interesting in a lot of ways because uh, you've got some history in there. You've got uh, just some odd things. I'll throw this out. And I'm not trying to turn this into a sports show, but you, you mentioned about free throws in the NBA, the, the art of the free throw. Um, and those people that are old enough, like myself, to remember uh, Rick Barry, Will Chamberlain nice. for a while. Nice. They did the underhand thing and the, the granny shot, whatever. Uh, it's really disappeared from you. But why do you have that in your book? Uh, it is such a great example of here you have Wilt Chamberlain. So it's, you know, for those listeners who, who didn't know Wilt Chamberlain, arguably top three basketball player of all time. And you don't have to love sports at all. You know, this is, you're yeah. talking about greatness. Right. Right. I mean, right. he's to score a hundred points in a game. I don't care if everybody helps you. And it's actually the mob is involved to make sure the game's fixed. It's still hard to get a hundred points in a game. Um, and he, he was amazing. I mean, he, he was also able to high jump. Um, I think it was six to seven feet high. He was, he was like, ended up being like a top track star. So anyway, this guy who was anyways on television talking about bragging how he slept with over 10,000 women over his lifetime and statisticians calculated that was actually impossible unless he was doing it while it was, you know, pre-birth and, the, he had he had won titles. He was one of the richest people uh, alive. And he, for one year, was told, because he was so horrible at throwing free throws, you're standing alone 15 feet away from the basket. Everything is quiet. You get two points because someone fouled you. And he sucked. He, it, and even still, he was an amazing basketball player. So a bunch of coaches said, listen, you got to work on this. And they realized you can't. 
why don't you throw it underhand like little kids do naturally, right? Just rock the boat between your legs and just toss it up. So we tried this for one season and he had an astronomical improvement in his ability to hit these shots. Now, this is the interesting part of the story. So many people made fun of him. It's often called the granny shot, like a grandma. Right. Um, And people wore dresses in the stands and they wore these gray wigs (laughs) and they kind of were were saying, you know, he was a girl. You got to remember at that time period that was considered insult. Obviously, now it's absurd. Um, And here is the toughest, strongest, for some people, the sexiest man alive. And he said, I can't deal with the rejection. I can't deal with being negatively evaluated. I refuse to do this. Everyone says that I'm a sissy. Again, this is based on the time period we're talking about here. And he stopped and he still, he went back to his old way and he sucked and he gave up points in his games. He gave up wins. He, 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 you know, he destroyed some of the, the, uh, the team dynamics of willing to sacrifice um, you know, championships. And if Will Chamberlain could not go against the status quo because he's worried about being looking like a loser. What does that say for the rest of us for trying to be, you know, challenge the mainstream thinking conventions, the dominant social order? Right. And that's fascinating because, and again, uh, we, we'll wrap this up on the free throw thing, but we lapse into the, uh, the NBA scores here, but uh, you don't see it any, you don't see anyone doing it. Now, I mean, it's it's sort of verboten, do. you know. You wouldn't, you would never do that. Uh, at least, maybe somebody will now. I don't know. After your book comes out, maybe they'll take. Hey, time time to do it. Um, this being Black History Month, we should talk about. And you've got a great example in that book, Elizabeth Jennings. Why don't you tell us the Elizabeth Jennings story you've got in the book? Well, let me be insubordinate because I want to give the, the readers the enjoyment of that story and give a story okay. that almost made the book but didn't that is also okay. relevant oh, to Black History Month. Oh, bonus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, you know, one of my heroes who didn't make the book was Frederick Douglass. And, oh, yeah. sure. and so you know, he was, he's famous, but let's go back to before he was famous. And um, he was a slave in the South, and he had a very abusive um, plantation owner. And who basically um, snuffed out all the candles of where he lived, as well as the you know the other black people who lived there, and he taught himself to read and write in the dark with no teacher. I just want to like just to sit back and think about in the 1800s to have this have this grit, this perseverance, kind of this this willingness to be courageous enough to risk your life physically literally, because, you know, education is the way out. And it's always been the way out for a lot of situations. He taught himself to read and write. Um, He was respected by abolitionists who heard about Frederick Douglass. Um, He eventually escaped to the North. And in the North, abolitionists brought him from platform to platform of this anti-slavery platform and said, hey, Frederick Douglass, you know, listen, speak up to this bunch of white people. Tell people how you got out. Tell people how black people can be empowered. Speak the way. And while he escaped and while he was a quote unquote free man, he realized these abolitionists, they were using him as a token. And he, and he's, he was like, I'm not speaking about all the issues that I want to. I don't just want to talk about slavery. I don't just want to be defined as a black man. And so he walked away from the abolitionists. And this is often left out of the history books. 
And he lived his own life giving his own speeches without white people having to give him the platform. He created a huge audience, huge fanfare fair by, you know, governors and leaders and business and businessmen and women, mostly businessmen at that time period who supported him. And he was, he never let anyone dictate how he's going to live his life. So it wasn't just about the emancipation of being a black man. It was the emancipation of someone reclaiming their freedom, their autonomy, their critical thinking, and their ability to live their life in their own way because they're not detracting from anyone else, which is the archetype that I call the niche carver. They carve their niche and it's outside the mainstream and they're just living a good life and it's just not the way other people do and they motivate and inspire other people. We're talking with Todd uh, Cashton, uh, author of The Art of Insubordination. And Todd, you've got all kinds of, uh, I won't say charts, because that's probably the, gives the wrong uh, impression, but, but lists of things. I saw one there, 18 cues to offer a quick sense of belonging, um, which, you know, when I looked through that list, I thought, well, a lot of these um, just really are, are, are simply being polite or, or, or showing attention to someone rather than, you know, doing your own thing or acting like your, you know, your phone is more important than anything else. But uh, why is that important? Why is the sense of belonging uh, that you stress in the book? It is the most fundamental psychological need that is across the entire human species. Um, any country that you travel to, travel to Russia, travel to Saudi Arabia, travel to Sri Lanka, Cambodia, um, we need to feel two things. We need two types of people in our lives to feel the sense of belonging. One, we can call the secure base. And that's, you know, Steve, you and I, all the listeners. Sometimes things, we have mental anguish. We feel lonely. We feel anxious. We feel depressed. These are all normal normal human experiences. We need to know there's someone in our lives that we can go to, whether it's for a hug, someone to listen to us, someone to support us, or someone to provide advice. Having that allows us to have a firm architectural foundation where we can be ourselves and we can work to develop skills and knowledge and all that difficulty of acquiring that, that expansion to our sense of self. Now, we also need another type of person in our life, which is part of belonging, which is called the safe haven. And this is, this is from John Bowlby's work in the early 20th century. The safe haven, you think about like um, Homer's Odyssey, is where you have someone about to go on a quest. It could be your kid, nephew, or niece going off to college. It could be someone deciding you know, during this quote-unquote great resignation during the pandemic of saying, you know what, I don't want to be a financial consultant. I want to be a teacher. That's more meaningful to me. And they make that switch. The safe haven is someone who says, listen, I know you're about to go on a quest and discover new things and meet new people. I want you to know I support you. Go out there. And when you come back and you are new and improved and revised with new experiences, I will welcome you in and I'm there on your shoulder to be with you on this journey. And when we have those two types of characters in our life, and I want people to think about what names come to mind for your secure base and for your safe haven, we have more fortitude and we have more flexibility to challenge norms and beliefs and go our own way 
despite being told this is what you should be doing, this is what you ought to be doing. Talking with Todd Cashin, a professor of psychology at George Mason University and the author of The Art of Insubordination. One more thing for you, Todd. Um, and I always, I'm always learning um, things that I, I feel, gosh, I, I've been out of this. I didn't know. <laughs> Fugazi. The, the, the group Fugazi, you, you have a good part in there in your book about Fugazi. Tell people about Fugazi and why you've got it in your book. Uh, I hope this doesn't turn people away from the book. Um, I'm, I'm going to out myself. This, this, is, this is when you're going to have to work, work for it. Here, Todd. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's true. It's true. Um, everybody has their own favorite band. And there's something to be said. There's actually some research of that. Whatever you listen to at the age of 18 to 20 is often what you listen to the most for the rest of your life. And there are some bands and some musicians that just have this powerful impact that changes your identity. Like this band is your life. And, and I'm not trying to sell you on Fugazi. I want to sell you on their mission. Uh -huh. This was a band that was a punk rock band that realized there are roots in reggae and R&B um, in country music, in Latin music, and why are we not integrating this all together? Now, this is the early 80s and early 90s, like way before these fusion bands. But that's not the interesting story about Fugazi the music. They said, no matter how much money they make, and they, they made a lot of money, um, they, they remembered what it was like to be a kid who couldn't afford to go to a concert. And a lot of concerts were 18 and older because they served alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so they said, all of our concerts will have no beer so that any kid of any age can come to our shows. We will never charge more than $5 for a concert. We will never charge more than $10 going through albums to cassettes to CDs. They never increased their rates, no matter how much inflation occurred. They loved their, their, they loved the people that loved music. And so they decided the only way to do this was we're not going to have a record label. We're going to create a record label. We're going to keep the cost low. We're not going to sell merchandise. So we're not going to be dependent on that. We're going to keep the cost at the level where anyone and everyone that wants to have a good time will be there. And when people, you got to go back now historically to the 80s, women often didn't go to concerts because there was so much misogyny and so much mistreatment of women. Ian McKay, the lead singer, I've been to these, you know, so many of their shows when I was younger. He would stop in mid-song, point to the guy that was kind of leering at a woman or grabbing her skirt and say, hey, guy, lay off the woman. And he would walk off the stage. I was at one of these shows, went up to the guy with microphone. It's like, why are you doing that? How do you think you're the game? Why did you ignore that the woman said no? Can you take a hint? <laughs> And if the guy gave pushback, he, he went into his pocket, grabbed five bucks and said, you know what? We don't need you at this show. Good luck with your life. I'll see you at the door. <laughs> and the crowd would cheer. Yeah. Think about how now there was no there was no YouTube then. This wasn't being publicized. This was they lived their values and they had the most racially diverse and gender diverse shows because the cult he created, well, they created a culture of inclusivity way before we were talking about diversity. That's a great, that's great. And, and, you know, I did one more thing on that is, and then not to poke, uh, you know, uh, holes in, in the great uh, institutions of our day, but when the Rolling Stones or I think, I don't know if they're off on a tour now or were or whatever, but I thought, you know, good Lord, 
haven't you made enough or, or you know, <laughs> you, you have to do this because I remember them when, and, and that's fine. I mean, that's, I'm old, but it just seemed like, you know, when you tell that story about Fugazi, it's like, Oh, now that's the spirit. That's the spirit. I remember the sixties and, and ongoing and you're not taking advantage and blah, blah, blah. And, but anyway, that's, that's a great, yeah. great, a great, a great thing. I, I think you're fine, Todd. That's, you know, you're not going to hurt any book sales with that, that whole Fugazi thing. I think it's great. All it's right. actually, it's, it's a fun, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say no, one no. of the fun, th- one of the fun things about being an author is you get to kind of just shove in the story of the band that had the most profound influence in your life and really just kind of, for anyone who reads this book and then I list the five songs you should listen to, uh, definitely reach out to me because um, there's some amazing creators, writers, thinkers, you know, actors, film directors, where I'm always like, how are they not famous? And this is one of those bands. Right. Like, why are they not famous? That's why we need to uh, listen to podcasts and read books and do all that stuff. Because you find out, oh my God, this was done as, as you have a, m- numerous examples in your book um, of things that, that have been overlooked. And, uh, you know, from the very beginning, when you talk about Darwin and the folks that preceded him, uh, you know, just all kinds of good stuff. So, Todd Cashin, we we got to uh, we got to roll. But the art of insubordination is the name of the book. It's it's a fascinating read, and we wish you well, Steve. I love talking to you. Wish we were only talking longer. Love your style. Thanks again. All right, Todd. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.